guys, I'm Valerie. And I'm Jasmine, and this is Crafts, Drafts, and Crime. Thank you for hanging out with us today, and we are going to be bringing you a really awful story, actually. So this case to me is just as alarming as the Ariel Castro case, which it actually ended just weeks before Castro kidnapped his first victim. Now, we do have a three-hour episode on this case on our Patreon. So if you are not familiar with the Ariel Castro case, subscribe right now. <laughs> yeah, that's a, definitely a doozy. Definitely put you in a bad place from all of the in-depth research that I can yes. recall. And I went into a bad place just listening to it. But it's a great episode, though. Super, super informative. Things that I still didn't know, even though, like, I've heard uh, multiple podcasts. Like, I've obviously, like, watched uh, documentaries on it and stuff like that. So, yeah. Really good. So, thank you. But so this case is going to give you those same kind of vibes. Because it, it just, it very much, like, the second that I read the first article about this case, that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, oh my God, this sounds like the Cleveland kill- kidnappings. Mm. So it's a perfect suit for our abduction season. And I just can't believe I had never heard of this before. So I'm hoping that this is a new story to a lot of you. And we are going to be talking about the victims of John Jamelski. Do you know him by name? No. Okay. So sources for this episode are Wikipedia, Cold Case Files, Episode 81, New York Daily News, local Syracuse, New York State Department of Corrections, CNN, Larry King Live, USA Today, Crime Library, New York Post, Syracuse.com, and The Post Standard. I do want to give a trigger warning. We are going to be discussing sexual assault and rape of both adults and children. On April 8th, 2003, a woman named Angela received a phone call that she wasn't expecting. When she picked up, the voice on the other line asked, do you know who this is? And immediately, she did. It was her sister, who in a lot of articles is referred to as Jane. Jane whispered into the phone that the man that she was with was a rapist and was holding her. She asked Angela if she heard her, and Angela did. Immediately after that, the phone disconnected. So, Jane had been missing since October of the previous year, of 2002. Because 16-year-old Jane frequently stayed with other friends and very much did her own thing, her family thought that she had run away, so she had never been reported missing. Once the phone disconnected, Angela saw that the call had come in from a bottle return shop in Manlius, a town that's just 15 miles away from where she was. So she called the number back, and a woman named Terry answered the phone. Angela asked to speak to the lady that just got off the phone, to which Terry said, Oh, Mika? She just left. Even though this wasn't her sister's name, Angela was positive that the person that she was speaking to was her sister. So she told Terry that her sister just told her over their phone that she was being held by a man who had been raping her. Now, Terry, in complete shock, told Angela that the man that she was with, whose name was John, was on his way to a pet store nearby, and she actually knew the person who was currently working there. So, 
Angela called the police and headed to the bottle return shop as Terry called Keith, who was the employee who was working at the pet store. And she told Keith that same conversation that she just had with Angela. Just as they hung up, John and Jane walked into the pet store. John introduced Keith to his friend, Mika. She was looking at the ground and acting pretty withdrawn, and Keith knew immediately that the story was true. They left minutes later, and Keith called 911. While Angela was at the bottle return shop giving her statement to police, another call came into her cell phone. The police answered it, and sure enough, it was Jane on the other line. They were able to trace the call to an auto dealership. Police sped there, and when they arrived, Jane ran to the cop car that pulled into the lot. John was arrested immediately. He didn't seem to be concerned about spending any time in jail, and he actually made jokes about going bowling later on that day. With Jane safe, police were able to learn about the horrors that she had experienced over the last six months. While she was walking alone, John convinced her to get into his car somehow. He had been using Viagra to rape her daily, and she stayed between his dungeon, which I'll talk a little bit about shortly, and his house. All of the doors in his house were padlocked and the windows were boarded up, so Jane had no way to escape. After a while of being captive, John began to think that they were friends, and he eventually started to take a couple risks, bringing Jane out to a bowling alley and actually taking her out to karaoke, where she went on stage and sang. On this fateful day that she escaped, she was running errands with him when she inquired about calling the church for service times. And that's when she called Angela. That was when she saw her opportunity. And that is just the beginning of a story that would unravel for police about the monster that had been living right under their noses. Doesn't that immediately give you Ariel Castro vibes? Definitely. And the fact that she had the wherewithal to even like, like to be able to call, think to call her sister, I would have been terrified. But at the same time, thank God he's an idiot and thinks that just because you hold somebody captive and they're nice to you and they do what you want, mind you, they're doing it because you're holding them captive and they have no other choice. Like, you're going to feel comfortable taking that person with you out to different places. Like, you're a dummy. Right. And I, I thank God you're a dummy. Right. And I think that she was really smart in a way because he thought that he could trust her because he had taken her out. You know, when she went to karaoke and she was on the stage, she had a microphone. She could have called him out in front of all those people, but she didn't for whatever reason. And so at this point in time, he's not really worried about her trying to escape at this point because she's already like, so to speak, proven her, you know, that he can trust her. Right. But really, she was just smart. Right. I feel like um, that should be like everybody's game plan, like in the back of their mind, like you should try to gain your, if this ever happens to you, gain their confidence, make them think that you guys are okay. And then when you see your opportunity, take it. That's like you either play dead or you play like you're, you're their friend. So I feel like she was really smart for doing that. 
Right. And, you know, we've discussed stuff like this in a lot of cases, but even, you know, a lot of people end up misconstruing that a lot of times into Stockholm syndrome, where it's like people just find a way to cope and they find a way to survive. And for her, she was like, I'm going to find my opportunity, but this is not it. And then that day she called her sister and she answered the phone and that was it for her. Right, because she could have just as easily, like, when she was singing karaoke um, or when she was bowling, she could have said anything to anyone. But the chance of them not taking her seriously or possibly saying something to him or, you know, whatever, like, not reacting the way that she wanted them, expected them to react when she told them she was being held captive, is a 50-50 chance. When it's your family... Like, you know that they're looking for you, or at least they know that something's wrong because you've been gone for a while. Or even if they right. didn't know, that's your family at the end of the day. So if you call them, you're like, hey, this guy is, you know, holding me captive. His name is John. Like, they're going to, like, pounce immediately. Right. And that's exactly what her sister did. Because her sister knew that she hadn't heard from her in a while. And she was like, oh, shit. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Anyways, long, you know, the great thing is, is that she was able to get John caught and that would be the end of his torment, at least for now. So police got a search warrant for the ranch home in DeWitt that he lived in and they knocked on the door and when there was no response, they forced entry. And the house was full of shit. I mean, years upon years of junk. There are pictures of this online and it's literally like an episode of Hoarders. It's like you walk right into it. So when they got to the cellar, they opened the door and they found endless rows of even more stuff. So in total disbelief, police discovered at the end of the cellar, there was a small four by four foot steel door. After breaking through the padlock, they discovered an eight foot tunnel that they had to crawl through. On the other side of the tunnel was another steel door that was also padlocked. Once inside, they discovered what from then on would be referred to as his dungeon. I don't think that cops get enough credit when it comes to things like this. The shit that they have to go through, like, and see, like, if I was a cop, like, I would have no choice but to go through that fucking tunnel. Mind you, I would not want to go through that fucking tunnel. Who knows what's on the other side? true but at least when they're going through it they're not the one being thrown in there by a monster yeah right against exactly. their will but yeah no i can't imagine either it's such a scary like you have no idea what to expect so inside of the dungeon were two 12 by 12 foot rooms and one room was a filthy piece of foam that had been used as a mattress for john's victims over the last 15 years in the second room there was a bathtub that was on a table and a toilet seat over a five-gallon bucket. The bathtub had been used for occasional bathing for his victims, which they could do with a water hose, but there was no plumbing. So the water had to sit on the floor in the room until it evaporated, which makes it incredibly moldy and damp, just gross. Mm -mm. So they used a black light to look for signs of sexual assault, and they saw names on the wall that fluoresced that had been painted over. And there was also a wall calendar that had descriptions of acts done on certain days. It was kind of like a diary that he had forced his victims to keep. 
And it included things like if they brushed their teeth, which they would put a T for, if they bathed, which they would do a B for, and sex, which they would put an S for. On the wall also were a few paintings, a peace sign, a New York skyline, and the words Wall of Thugs. And for Detective Schmidt, who was one of the people who entered the tunnel that day, it brought him back to a memory of a report he took just a few years prior. On Friday, May 11th, 2001, 26-year-old Jennifer, a mother of two, was walking in downtown Syracuse, New York, in a shady neighborhood after having a few drinks. There were a group of kids behind her who were kind of close to her and they kept calling out a couple of things. And it was raining. So when an older gentleman pulled up and offered her a ride, Jennifer took it. She thought she would be totally fine because who is threatened by a grandfather looking figure in a car, right? Right. So they began driving in the direction of her home. So Jennifer was surprised when the man pulled into a driveway that wasn't her house. And she asked him, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I just got to grab something real quick. So Jennifer was like, okay. And she tried to get out of the car. She was like, I'm just going to leave. Like, this is weird. But she was locked in the car and the door wouldn't open. And the very next thing she remembers is waking up naked in a dark cellar. Her ankle was chained to a steel grate. John told her that she had to have sex with him daily. And if she didn't, it would mean that she had to spend more time there. So he told her that each day that she tried to resist him, he would add another day to her captivity. At first, she tried fighting him off. But it occurred to her that if she were to overpower him, she would be locked inside of a cellar where nobody would find her and no way out. So after trying to fight him, John burnt Jennifer with a cigarette. He told her that he was part of an underground slavery group that police were involved in. And she said of it, quote, he had made me believe that he was working for somebody and he was just doing his job. And I was getting sold on the internet for like $30,000. And then he made it seem like he was saving me and I wasn't going to actually go overseas, but he was going to bring me home. But I had to stay down there and I had to have sex with him every day. So John had Jennifer write a letter to her family stating that she was in a rehabilitation clinic and that she was okay. So because of this, her family, who originally had reported her missing, was no longer concerned about her. And police didn't continue to investigate her disappearance. The letter was in her handwriting and the situation made sense to them. John let Jennifer eat once daily and he would often let her pick what she wanted to eat. She prayed daily asking not to die. Meanwhile, the cigarette burns that she had from John had grown infected and she had an abscess on her back that was so severe that she had trouble moving. Mm. On her 56th day down there, on July 7th, John threw her clothes at her and told her to come on. And she thought he was going to kill her. He blindfolded her, had her put a hoodie on backwards so that the hood was over her face, and he handcuffed her. He drove her to her mom's house. He took off the sweatshirt. And he told her to get out. So she went to a hospital for a rape kit, but it had actually been a couple days since he had assaulted her, so they didn't find any DNA. 
She described the man, and she said that the car was a 1975 Orange Mercury Comet. She had no idea where she was held or who this man was. She could only describe it as an underground cellar with a peace sign and the words Wall of Thugs painted on the wall in red. Police looked up the car, and there was only one car registered in that immediate area that was a 74 Comet, and it was not orange. So it wasn't a match, and police didn't believe her because of that letter that she had wrote, and nothing else added up. After her release, she got involved in an abusive relationship, which she thankfully eventually got out of. It wasn't until after Jane escaped and Detective Schmidt, who was the person who had spoken to Jennifer when she reported the incident, recognized that she was telling the truth. John didn't realize the severity of what he had done. He said of it, quote, I did something wrong, but I figure it's, you know, unlawful imprisonment. Uh, So, you know, maybe 30 hours of community service or something of that nature. And, uh, you know, if that happens and my name gets in the newspaper, you know, then so be it. That's literally what he thought was going to happen to him. For two confirmed victims that he held captive and raped daily. Right. What the fuck? You didn't just like... Even the fact of the matter is, don't take anybody against their fucking will, bro. Like... Yeah, first of (laughs) all. What? First, First and foremost, don't take anybody against their will. Second, you can't be holding people at your house or wherever... And expect just to get a slap on the wrist, like, or on the hand. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Right. So, as police released more details about this, more victims started coming forward. So, let me tell you just a little bit about John. John Jamelski was born on May 5th, 1935, in Fayetteville, New York. As a kid, he was very reserved and he didn't have many friends. He went to college and he worked at grocery stores and as a handyman and a carpenter. He helped his dad invest money in stocks, and meanwhile, he pinched every penny that he could. He was known for being frugal, cheap, and a hoarder. In 1959, John married Dorothy Richmond, a schoolteacher. On June 20th, 1960, Dorothy gave birth to a son who died the very next day. They went on to have three more sons in the next three years. John's mother lived next door to them, and she died at age 85 in 1990. And police were actually suspicious of her death, and they ended up doing an autopsy. Because she was emaciated, and the house was freezing, and she was on a mattress in the kitchen when she was found deceased. Mm. As it turns out, she only put heat on in the kitchen to save money. The autopsy showed the death to not be suspicious. And after her death, John inherited all the stocks from his parents, and he used the money to begin investing in real estate in places like California. So he actually had over a million dollars in stocks. And he was technically a millionaire, even though he was the cheapest person. (laughs) So he continued on with all of his frugal ways, and he saved everything. He collected bottles to return for deposit money, and when the police searched his home, he had over 13,000 bottles in it. They were organized by type, so like if it was like a Corona beer bottle, for example, that was in one area. Can you imagine 
hoarding a bunch of bottles, 13,000 is a very large number. No, not at all. Like, I'm also not a hoarder, so I can only imagine what that house looked like. I can't even watch hoarders when I'm eating because it's just not a thing. Also, 13,000, like, I, like, why not just go ahead and, um, you know, donate them as you get them or keep them outside? Something. Well, in, yeah, he's returning them for, like, deposit money, so go return them. But he just had such a problem with collecting things. So he even had newspapers and magazines and receipts for, like, the last 20 years. See, okay, so the thing about receipts, so I was thinking about this the other day. So, like, you know, they don't teach you about taxes or anything in school. So, for some reason, when I started doing my own taxes, I thought you had to keep your receipts. So You do not. (laughs) See, sorry, this is totally, like, just, it is a whole thing about receipts I was thinking about the other day. But, like... After you're done with the receipts, even if, like, back in the day you had to keep them, throw them away. But, like, I've watched enough episodes of Hoarders that I realized that for there's something on each little thing that draws it to them and they think they have to have it still. Like, maybe it's a memory or, or like something about that newspaper article or something or just the fact that you know they think one day like the bottles like he just keeps collecting them and collecting them he's like one day I'm going to be able to turn in all these bottles and I'm going to have a huge lump sum of money when I do that but then here you are with 13,000 bottles and you still ain't turned them in right it's a it's a compulsion it is a hoarding is a mental illness so he very much had this issue and it was with everything And on his property, he was also that person that had, like, old cars and appliances and furniture on his lawn. So that's just, like, he was a hoarder by all accounts. And he had actually been visited by local code enforcement officers on several occasions. So he decided to sell some land to a contractor so that they could develop large, fancy homes. And he just built a six-foot fence around his remaining one acre of property. And it very much stood out like a sore thumb because, again, they built this, like, really ritzy neighborhood around his house where he had all this junk just everywhere. In 1984, John's first signs of being a predator were revealed. He befriended a 16-year-old named Gina. He told everyone that he had met her at the Salvation Army, and she came around all the time and would even start coming to family events. Now, his wife, Dorothy, confided in one of their sons, Brian, that she thought that he was cheating on her with Gina, this 16-year-old. Mind you, he was born in the 30s, and we're in the 80s right now, so we're talking a 50, he's in his 50s, okay? So, she asked Brian not to confront John about it, but he did end up punching him in the face at one point in time because of it, and he broke some of his teeth. Nice. he had confirmed that they were sleeping together. Also, um, can I just point out something that's obvious, I think, to myself and maybe to other people? Um, sure. How about if you think your your spouse is having an affair with somebody who is very, very, very underage or just underage at all? Maybe report that to the cops. Yeah. And, I, you know, I wonder in 1984, what was the legal age of consent in New York? 
Oh, you see, I didn't even think about that. I was just like, oh, no, call call the cops. Call the law. That's what they're there for. <laughs> I mean, I understand your point 100%. Yeah. And then in 1988, Dorothy became bedridden from colon cancer. And she ended up dying in 1999. So right after Dorothy got sick is when the first known victim of John's was terrorized. It was October of 1988, and 14-year-old Kirsten, who is a Native American girl, was out with her friends. She got into the car with John, who offered her a ride. And the next thing that she remembers is waking up inside of a well room. She was naked, and it was pitch black. This well room was technically part of John's mother's house, who lived next door to him. Each time that he went to rape Kirsten... He had the risk of being caught because he had to take her out of there. So John was a little unusual as it is. So when he decided that he was going to build what he referred to as a bomb shelter, but as we formally refer to it as the dungeon, nobody thought anything of it. In fact, his sons and their girlfriends had actually all been in there after it was constructed. And some of them even spent the night one time. Oh, hell no. I know, right? I would never. I would check it out. But... Here's the thing is if you brought me down there and you're like, oh, you want to check out the cellar? I'd be like, oh, yeah. And then you open a four by four door and I have to crawl through a tunnel. I'm like, no, I'm out. I don't need to see it. I'm like, nah, <laughs> I'm good, fam. Um, See you next time. Yep. Nope. Y'all let me know how it is on there. We can talk through the tunnel. But the real reason that John was doing this was because he wanted to be able to keep hostages in there. It had nothing to do with being a bomb shelter. So when it was complete. That's exactly what he did. He moved Kirsten into the dungeon and he brought her food once daily, usually crackers and water or Kool-Aid. He eventually bought her, brought her a TV that she was allowed to watch on occasion. John showed Kirsten pictures of her brother and her family and her house, threatening her if she tried to escape or if she ever told anybody. I always hate when they do that because it's like... Yes. What the fuck? Like, you're already obviously a sicko. And then on top of that, you're going to sit there and toy with these innocent people like that by showing them their family. Like, that's like when people turn on the news for their victims to watch people look for them. Like, it's fucking disgusting. It is. But it's all in that, you know, you have to control the situation because... I mean, how else, I guess, could you, I mean, I've never really thought about it in depth because I'm not a monster, but if you were trying to keep somebody in your captivity, what's the best way to manipulate them? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Unfortunately. It's really sad. Yeah. But I mean, it just, it only makes sense that he would do that because otherwise, what reason does she have to not fight him back and to not try to escape and to not call the police when she eventually, if she eventually gets out? Yeah, you've got a point. So it's, it's a shitty point, but yeah. <laughs> so is. after over two full years of captivity, John took Kirsten, who was now 17 years old, and he put a blindfold on her. He called his son, Brian, who I mentioned just a bit ago, and told him that he had been housing Kirsten because of a weight problem that she had and that her parents asked him to, you know, house her until the issue was resolved which is the weirdest reason I've ever heard for having a 17-year-old in your house. Also, can we just, like, talk about the fact that his son, after all of this is going to be 
out there for the public, for the world to see. His son has to deal with the fact that he knew his dad had her in there. And he and he his dad made him believe it was one thing when it was com- something completely different. Right. And here's the thing about that that I think of from his perspective. I'm just trying to think he already knew that his dad at this point in time had had an affair with a 16 year old. Mm -hmm. So to him, this girl is probably somebody that he just figured his dad's lying about because it's somebody he was having an affair with. Right. That's like, that sucks. That sucks so bad. It does suck. It does suck. And I don't know that that's just speculation, but like if just putting myself in his shoes, I guess that's probably what I would think. And so John told Brian that he needed a ride to the airport and they were going to be dropping off Kirsten there who he, you know, was going to be blindfolded because it was going to be a surprise and she couldn't know where they were going. So that's exactly what they did. Brian drove them to the airport and they let Kirsten out of the car and they drove off. And when they drove off, she took off her blindfold and that's when she realized where she was. She ran into the airport and got help from there. Now, Brian was never convicted of accessory or anything because by the time that John had gotten caught, the statute of limitations is way past and it's unclear what he knew. So according to him, he had no idea that he was helping release a kidnapped victim from his father and that he had done that. And Kirsten did not tell her family what happened to her because she was terrified of John. Instead, she told them that she ran away. So Kirsten is one of two people who've done some, a decent amount of interviews with Jennifer being the other. And there are actually videos of her that they're not sexual in nature at all, but that she has zero recollection of. So she was shown some of those videos on Larry King Live and she has no idea. She has no memory of that whatsoever. That breaks my heart. That's hor- that scares the shit out of me. It's like it's like you watch videos of yourself as like a, a little kid and you're like, I obviously you can't remember that. But like literally like months ago you were sitting there and this person was recording you like this and here you are seeing it for the first time. That is terrifying. Cause it's right. like what else could have been happening while I was in this this state of mind right exactly because if you don't remember that who else what who knows what else you don't remember right then on march 31st 1995 john picked his second known victim he saw a 14 year old latina girl walking and asked her if she wanted to earn some money and he told her that he would pay her for delivering a package so she got in the car with him and walked into the dungeon to retrieve the package. So, like, you you think, like, you're you're a teenager, like, you see this, like, creepy-ass, like, cellar thing, or dungeon, and it's like, I'm like, nope, nope my way out of there. But then at the same time, I sit there and think, like, she, she was probably really struggling for that money, or her family could have been struggling, and she was like, I got to do this no matter how, what it is. I don't care. Like, we got to get, if I got to get dirty, I'm going to do this shit. And that sucks. That sucks it so bad. Suck. That because there's suck. so many kids who feel the weight of their family's, like, issues that they feel like they can fix it. And then things like this, like, 
you know, things like people like this prey on them. Right. Right. They accidentally become a target because of it. And, you know, I wonder, too, because what I had read is that she had walked into the dungeon. But I wonder, too, if she actually just walked into the cellar, because that makes more sense to me. And it was just in one article that it had said that she had walked into the dungeon. So it makes more sense to me that she would have walked into the cellar because from there, he knocked her out with some pills and she woke up naked and chained. So either way, she obviously didn't consent to being stuck in this dungeon. And her family reported her missing, but police weren't concerned because she had a history of drug use and they presumed she was a runaway. She was 14. And police were like, eh, she probably ran away. I 14. hate that. I fucking despise that with this this system, this correctional, like, this system. It just it fucking infuriates me. Like, I understand both sides. Like, yeah, you don't want to spend, like, extra time looking for these people or these kids who run away a lot but at the same time at the end of the day these are kids these are people's children these are the people who are gonna shape the the fucking you know whatever they're gonna do all this extra shit like good shit possibly but it's if you don't spend any time looking for them they're gonna run into things like this it fucking blows my mind right and then you have people like john jamelski who were like, oh, well, this girl's perfect because the odds of somebody looking for her? Zilch. Like, he might have had that in his head, which is fucked up because there's no reason that police shouldn't have looked for her. Her family was. Right. So, you know, just, it's just shitty. So, just like Kirsten, John showed this girl pictures of her family and threatened them if she didn't obey or if she ever told anybody. When John eventually let her go, he blindfolded her and dropped her off in front of her mom's apartment. She told her family what had happened, but John continued to drive by the house on occasion after releasing her, so she never reported it because she was terrified of him. This makes me so mad! (sighs) I just want to rage right now. It makes me so mad. Like, so she knew who it was, right? I mean, she doesn't know him other than that he keeps coming by the house on occasion. And that's the thing, too. It's not like he was coming by every Tuesday at 2 o'clock and she could be like, oh, I can call the police and they can be here at this time. Like, he would randomly drop by, drive by. Because, like, if it was, like, my family, like, I'd be like, I don't know when he's coming by, but he's going to be there. Like, y'all got to be ready. Like, the you know i just uh, i can't i i just can't the fact that this guy i think the other thing that bothers me so much about this is that he keeps letting them go he lets them go and they 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 just can't they they can't do anything right he has tortured them into fear so deep that they're not even reporting it at this point. And then Jennifer, who had reported it, who was the last victim before Jane that we know of, she reported it and they basically told her to fuck off. Right. It's fucking disgusting. So, and don't worry, that's going to happen again. 
So on August 31st, 1997, John spotted a vulnerable 53-year-old Vietnamese refugee who spoke very little English, and she was walking alone. So John introduced himself and told her that he was lonely and he needed friends. He forced her into his car and then took her to an abandoned house, and he raped her there. He tied her to a stack of flattened cardboard boxes so that she couldn't move and drove her to his house where he kept her in the dungeon, and he raped her daily. On September 3rd, just three days after her abduction, her boyfriend reported her missing. Police had no leads to go off of. John released her on May 23rd, 1998, with $50 at the bus station. And she said of it, quote, I cried and prayed every day of my captivity. I never cried in front of him again after he slapped me so hard and injured my ear. I did everything he asked, hoping he would release me. I did not want to die down there in those rooms because no one would ever find my body and my soul would remain in a cold place. After her release, she reported it, but police didn't believe her. They told her that kidnapped persons don't come home alive, and she was making it up. Oh, that's fucking great. And the next known victim after her was Jennifer, who was the 26-year-old Caucasian woman, and then Jane, who was the African-American girl who escaped. And police think that his victims were different races on purpose, Because he was such a hoarder that they think that he was collecting victims in such a way that they all had to be different in some degree. Unfortunately, that makes sense. Yeah, he doesn't have an MO. Except for, I mean, he's preying on people who he thinks are vulnerable. But he is, I mean, we're talking different age, different race. What I was thinking was maybe he's doing it to make sure that they can't, that he can establish like a pattern. And that way it would be harder for them to connect them and to think of his next move, like predict his next move. Right. Because those, they weren't tied together at all until the the detective Schmidt went into the tunnel and saw the wall of thugs when they, when Jane escaped, like they hadn't connected Jennifer to anything. Because first of all, Nobody had reported it that and well, the girl who did, they didn't take seriously. They didn't take Jennifer seriously either. He just happened to remember that part because it was weird. And none of them had anything in common. So you don't, you don't connect. That's why, you know, it's very easy when somebody has an MO to connect things or to, you know, make assumptions that might connect them, which doesn't always make it true either. But if you have five white girls go missing in five years, you might be like, hmm. That's interesting. Or like an Ariel Castro's case because of the proximity they, you know, they had in the age similarity. They connected Amanda and Gina in that case, even though the girls had nothing else in common, just based on the proximity and stuff like that. So with this, they were so spread out because he only ever had one victim at a time. Right. And they were people who he thought he could manipulate into never telling the police. And they were all so vastly different. That he was never concerned. Of course, he also didn't think he was going to get arrested. So, even after he got caught. Yeah, the fact that people like this, like, literally walk around here doing these atrocities to people. And they think that they're untouchable. I cannot fathom, like, 
how you gain that much confidence in being a fucking sicko and a monster. I don't either. I really don't. I don't know how somebody becomes this way. So on July 16th of 2003, it was the day of John's sentencing, and he said in court that he was sorry for what he did. Now, Jennifer gave a statement that was read aloud at court, which said, quote, I would like to take the opportunity to make a statement on my feelings that you may consider in the sentencing of John Jamelski. Needless to say, it was horrifying what this old man has done to myself and to other women. I have lived my life for two years knowing that this sick old man has existed and has done to other girls what he has done to me. I have lived in fear ever since. I am afraid of the dark, basements, and old men, whereas before I feared nothing. I also have horrible dreams at night. I cry out and jump in my sleep. My boyfriend has to awake me from my nightmares and he is outraged at what John Jamelski has done to me. I have lost a job and several friends due to his actions and what he has done to me. Knowing that he has been arrested has brought some comfort, though the fear still remains. What if he gets out and is able to begin another regime of terror to other women? which is exactly what I feel like he would do with my past experiences with him. John Jamelski is a sick and evil old man and should be punished. He has no right to take away my freedom, my right to breathe fresh air, or my right to be treated like a human being. He made my children think I was dead. That hurts more than anything else in the whole world. They had to endure pain, so let his punishment be swift and just. Maybe then I will at least be able to sleep at night. Also, please know that I am pleased to know that Mr. Jamelski will be sentenced, punished, and put away for hopefully many years. That was powerful. Yes, it was. And Jane also had a statement that it was read aloud at court. And that says, quote, I was really scared when you told me that I'll never go home and the people claimed to work for would have killed me if I ever tried to escape. I almost gave up hope when you brought my clothes to me in a million shredded pieces, telling me that these people trained those dogs to go after my scent. I felt completely stripped down to nothing. The only thing that got me through this horrendous nightmare was my strong faith in God, praying every day that he would help me go home. You not only damaged me, you damaged my baby. We both cried at night for each other, neither one of us knowing if we would ever be together again. You didn't just inflict pain and suffering on me every day. You hurt my baby and my family every day that you kept me locked up in that cold, dark dungeon. The torture endures the fear that I felt at every moment, never knowing if I would leave alive. All the lies that you convinced me to be true, the way you manipulated me into believing these people were going to sell me overseas. You had such power over me. And I never knew if I would be safe again. You will never be able to know the fear I felt being raped every day, sometimes three times a day. The nightmares I have, remembering how I had to fulfill your sick fantasies, make disgusting videos, being humiliated, never having any privacy, not even to use the toilet or to shower. Being chained to a fence like a dog. I hope With time, I will be able to forget the horrifying sex you forced me to have day after day after day, relentless, for six and a half long months, never leaving me alone, not for one day. You are the sickest man I have ever known. John was sentenced to 18 years to life. 
he was eligible for parole at age 86 in 2021. He was denied parole because the board had an interview with him in which John said some pretty delusional things, like he was talking about their situation in the cellar and in the dungeon and what their conditions were like. And he said, quote, there were bubble baths with scented candles and a shower for privacy. In what world? Yeah. He also said, quote, I had a bunker and people knew I had a bunker. We partied a lot out there and I was approached every now and then by someone that said it would be a good idea for a friend of hers that's a runaway to be there rather than out in the streets and that they came and as a trade-off, we had sex. And during those years that there was nobody in there, I would encourage them to go back to their families as soon as they could. And the only time the bunker was used was for a few parties and stuff. Shut the fuck up. That's literally the dumb. He's saying, and mind you, this is being said at his parole hearing in 2021. So this is 18 years after he's been arrested. This happened this year that he's saying this shit. It's like, you've had 18 years to think about this. And you're trying to convince people now that this was a place where you welcomed warmth and comfort to people. He also said that he met these women that he kidnapped at parties. He was asked if he held the women against their will, and he said, quote, Most of the time the door wasn't even closed, but there were occasions for over 12 hours that it was locked. Yes. So then, yes. Dumb fuck. <laughs> when was the door not closed? What are you talking about? You literally had them trapped in a dungeon with two padlocked doors with an eight-foot tunnel in between that was underground. Right, and on top of that, the fact of the matter is you told them and you scared them to the point of even if it was unlocked, you made them believe it was locked 24-7. And that's because you were tormenting them so much. Right. He was also asked what he thinks about his behavior and in regards to some of the girls being teenagers, to which he responded, quote, they are very promiscuous. Don't nobody want your old ass, you nasty man. He literally is slut-shaming the victims that he raped. Right. It is fucking disgusting. I can't. He was asked if he thought he caused harm to his victims, and his response to this was, quote, Oh yeah, I probably inadvertently, probably, yes. Yes, I could have talked them into returning to their family sooner, but when it did happen, you know, they gathered their stuff together, we jumped in the car, I drove them to their families, you know? Sometimes their family came out and helped them carry their stuff into their home. And then on a lot of occasions, I would return. If I was in the neighborhood, I'd call them on the phone and say, hey, you know, I'm going to be in the neighborhood. I'll stop by and we'll hang out for a little bit. And this is with all five of them. Well, all four of them. I didn't get a chance with the last one. But if they had anything against me, they would have called the cops and had a SWAT team hiding in the bushes. Hey, this guy raped me is coming over, arrest him. And nothing like that ever happened. It's not that big a place. We were running into each other on the street, in the club, in the supermarket. I literally cannot wrap my brain around this right now because I want to slap the shit out of him. It literally doesn't even make sense what he's saying. He was caught. You were caught, buddy. We know what you did. Who are you convincing right now? Like, what? 
I don't like I feel like he doesn't understand the assignment of trying to get out on parole lying through your teeth about what happened and about the conditions 18 years later when you've already been convicted of what actually happened is not how you're going to get paroled which is totally fine keep doing this then this whole this whole case that you're telling me right now is in my head I just keep saying do what (laughs) <laughs> in my head i i just what the do what again it literally is shocking and he was also asked how he got arrested to which he said quote oh the one girl and i as a matter of fact i opened up a joint bank account with her and me because we would go to the casinos and stuff and she would win money and she carried it in her back pocket and i said you gotta have a bank account so she knew my social security number she knew everything we had a joint bank account and i said you know i'm gonna give you a little bit of money here and there and whatever but you know you have to keep it safe and so anyway we had opened that up and some of her family was very good with me i mean we would meet you know occasionally different places you know with her sisters but she had a very large family but she had one sister that everybody you know everybody says you know she's a bitch i'm sorry but everybody thought it she hated me from day one and she was following us around and she knew where we were and she called the sheriff and said i want this man arrested that's with my little sister i can't i'm done i'm about to flip this table so fortunately the parole board think that his inability to take responsibility for his actions show that he is not suited to be released. But unfortunately, he is eligible to apply for parole again in December of 2022. So we need to make sure that that does not happen. So everybody needs to be aware of this because when the time comes around, we're going to try to have a say in it. Absolutely. I'm down. I am so down. It's not even funny. We will start a petition if there's not one already. And all of his money and real estate properties ended up getting split between his five known victims. And what's so scary about this is just that those are just the known victims. Like, we have no idea if there were people before this. Right. And that is the case of John Jamelski, who fortunately for this moment is still sitting in jail in his late 80s, where he should hopefully rot and die. Absolutely. Fuck that guy. It's always those fuckers who live the longest. Dirty old man. Fuck. If you want to find any of our stuff, you can check out our website at craftsdraftsandcrime.com. And we appreciate you listening as always. And until next time. Bye. Bye.